read this morning to Isaiah chapter 40, your Old Testament scriptures, Isaiah chapter 40. Read this morning verses 1 through 11 from Isaiah chapter 40. Familiar words used in the New Testament and in other contexts, so let's hear now. God's word as I read from Isaiah 40, beginning at verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling. In the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all people will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry? All people are like grass, and all their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. You who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power, and he rules with a mighty arm. See, his reward is with him, and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray and ask for God's help. Father in heaven, thank you again for your mercies towards us, the, the privilege of having in our hands the Holy Scriptures, hearing them read and proclaimed. Lord, show us Christ this morning from your word. May he be precious to us, and give us the grace that we need to glorify you, to love you, to love others, and to live and serve, live for you and serve you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. I read an inspiring story this week about the rescue of Allied airmen from Nazi-occupied eastern Serbia in 1944. The airmen were part of a campaign to destroy Nazi Germany's petroleum resources. And a refinery in Romania produced 35% of the petroleum. So if they could knock that plant out, they would have a significant advantage. Well, the Allies successfully destroyed the plant. But it came at the cost of hundreds of lost bombers and more than 500 airmen stranded behind enemy lines. Uh, Many of these airmen, when their planes would be shot down returning from Romania, they would evacuate and land there in eastern Serbia. 
One pilot even tells the story of, of running out the back of the airplane, parachuting down, and he landed right beside a Serbian family eating at an outdoor table, having their lunch. And they offered him food. The, the, the people were very welcoming to the Allies. And the local guerrilla army was Allied-friendly. So Nazi-occupied, but a local army that was Allied-friendly. Well, as these airmen would land, the guerrilla army would find them and they would collect and coordinate and try to communicate with other allies in order to coordinate their rescue. And they would have to send messages through embassies in Italy and back to America and beyond. And at first there was a lot of resistance to organizing this mission. It was viewed as too dangerous, too impossible. I think the official who finally got it green-lighted was somebody who had himself landed behind enemy lines in another mission and said, we have to get these airmen home. Well, so the mission gets green-lighted, but then all of the initial attempts have to be aborted. There are problems. So six, seven, eight times they have to pull the plug at the last minute. Finally, somebody got a cooked-up, coded message. They transmitted it and just hoped that somebody in Serbia was listening on the other end and could decipher from the message the coordinates and the time for the first incursion. Well... The message was received, and it was decoded. And with simple farming implements, the Serb workers cleared and smoothed a makeshift runway. Now, despite that, you still had a steep cliff on one side and thick woods on the other, so a 700-yard runway. And the plane, when it was going to land, of course, would have to do it at night, So when they spotted the incoming plane, it was able to signal to them, they lit bales of hay to provide your runway lights. Well, with all of that makeshift work, the landing was successful. And as the first group of airmen boarded the plane, I'm going to get emotional saying this, they take their boots off and give them to the Serbian villagers, most of whom had only the traditional Serbian slippers to wear. And in the end, The team rescued 512 downed airmen, including American, British, French, Italian, and Russian aviators, without losing a single airman or plane in this rescue operation, which went on for a few months. Now, I want us to try to imagine, none of us can fully imagine what it'd be like to be behind enemy lines, but just try to imagine being there in eastern Serbia. And you're wondering if others are going to be able to rescue you. Will the authorities view this mission as worth it? Will they be able to devise a possible plan? All you can do is sit and wait and just try to survive in this foreign country. Well, when we read the passage that we've read today that speaks to the inhabitants of Judah, they actually knew something what it was like to wonder if anyone was going to rescue them. God had warned them through Isaiah and other prophets if they did not trust him to be their protector, then he would bring the nations against them, including the very nation they thought would deliver them. Their alliances would fail, and eventually their oppressors would invade and win and carry them off to Babylon for 70 years of exile. God could deliver them. He had promised to do that. But if they would not trust and obey him, 
then they eventually would suffer invasion and exile. And that, in time, is exactly what happened. But despite all that judgment, God still promised to restore his people. But here's what the inhabitants of Judah are wondering now. Has the exile invalidated that promise? Those promises were being made before they went into exile. So have they now crossed the line of no return? Does God have the desire and the ability to rescue them from exile, from imprisonment in a foreign land? And it's in answer to those questions that God commissions Isaiah to speak these words of comfort to his people, which, as we will see, include the language of God himself coming to rescue his people. So this is the season of Advent. As we've said, the word Advent means coming. And as we'll see from this passage today, the the promises God makes come to their fullest fulfillment in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And even through his forerunner, John, who announced his coming. So let's use this passage today to hear what Christ's coming says to you and to the world. And it tells us four things. Here's the first. Christ's coming tells us that God ends our punishment. How does this passage begin? With this call to comfort God's people. Verses 1 and 2. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. And if those words are familiar, they're the first words you hear in Handel's Messiah. And they capture the heart of the prophet's message throughout this chapter and all the ones that follow in Isaiah. God has spoken hard words to his people. But now he speaks words of comfort. And as one commentator puts it, whatever may lie ahead for the people of Judah and Jerusalem, God's ultimate purpose for them is not destruction, but redemption. Not death, but life. In other words, God's trustworthiness does not end at the point of disobedience. Now let's consider some of this language in verse 2. God wants Isaiah to tell Jerusalem that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double from all her sins. Now, why has Jerusalem received double for all her sins? And how is this good news? Well, that language echoes a section in the law where thieves must pay back double what they have stolen. In other words, it's the consequence of their crime. And so I take it as God's way of saying, you have now suffered the consequences of the broken covenant. God says, your hard service has been completed. I think one translation renders that something along the lines of, you've paid your time. Or, and then in the next phrase, your sin has been paid for. Now I read that phrase and I wonder, okay, who has paid for Jerusalem's sins? Has Israel made amends for her sin herself by suffering? Well, I think this is one of those both and sections that speaks to the immediate situation, but also directs our attention 
to the future and to the Lord Jesus. You see, on the one hand, you could say Israel has paid for their sins in this sense. They've endured the punishment threatened in the Mosaic Covenant. God said, you break the covenant, here's the consequence. And at this point, that punishment has been rendered and it's been accepted as satisfactory as one translation renders it. The allotted time has come to an end and so God is ready to restore. But I also think there's a sense in which any reference to satisfaction for sin, any reference to paying for sin in the Bible must look to the future. And I think we get that right from Isaiah himself. One of the themes of Isaiah, and I've said this before, is that Israel has this obligation to be the servant of the Lord. They are to be his agent. They bring the knowledge of God and justice and other virtues to the world. But Israel at this time is blind, unholy, unjust. They're oppressive, and they're facing this discipline for their sins. That is why God, or maybe not that is why, but because of grace, God promises to send his ideal servant. And this servant will bear Israel's sins. And this servant will transform her into a light to the nations. And that's exactly what you find if you keep reading when you come to chapter 53, verse 11. After he has suffered he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. There's where the sins ultimately get paid for. Israel can suffer and Israel can become the servant of God, but only through grace. And the true end of her exile will come not by her suffering, but by the suffering of another in her place. That's why I'm saying, friends, Christ's coming tells us that God has ended our punishment. I love the flow of John 3.16 into verse 17. We know verse 16, God so loved the world that he gave His one and only son, so the next verse, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And that's the Christmas message, friends. A message of the Lord's forgiveness. Comfort to you because of the Lord's forgiveness through grace. Those who love Jesus can rest in the knowledge That sins are forgiven because Jesus paid it all. Now let's look at the next idea that Christ's coming tells us. It tells us that God lives with us. Isaiah continues with words that are quoted in the New Testament. Verse 3. A voice of one calling. In the wilderness prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Now notice that language. God is telling The people, I intend to come back to you. We need to build a road so that I can travel back to you. And if we need to level the desert in order to make that road, that's what we'll do. Verse 4 tells us the valleys will be filled, the mountains and the hills leveled, the rough ground made smooth, and then God will come across the desert in order to get to his people. 
And that fits the theme we've been looking at this Advent season. God promises the virgin-born son who will be God with us. And that child will be called the mighty God. His reign will transform creation into a harmonious world. God himself is returning to his people. And sometimes, friends, your, your circumstances are such that your only hope is for God to shows up, show up. And when he does, he often does it in a way where it was clear that it was only something God could do. And that is what God is doing here. As one commentator puts it, God is seen figuratively as coming from his distant residence on Sinai to aid his people in their hour of distress. The people cannot help themselves, and there is no one else, so God himself may come, must come. And that's just a beautiful image, a dark night, an exiled people or a besieged people, and here comes hope across the mountain. Like those soldiers there behind enemy lines, seeing the rescuing plane coming. Or just any of you who are parents, knowing what you would do to rescue your children. God returns to his people. And as I said a moment ago, verse 3 is cited in the New Testament, in the first three Gospels, in fact, of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The words are applied to John the Baptist. He is the messenger who prepares the way for the Lord. So in the years that follow this prophecy, as Isaiah foretells these things, Judah goes into exile. They're there in Babylon for 70 years. And God eventually raises up Cyrus to defeat the Babylonians and allow them to return to their homeland. So in a sense, God came for them and rescued them from their exile. They rebuilt the temple. They rebuilt Jerusalem. They enjoyed a measure of peace and safety. But when we turn that page to the New Testament, here are those who were the eyewitnesses of Jesus, the eyewitnesses of his ministry, the eyewitnesses of his resurrection, and they see, ah, in him, God has returned to his people. In him, Israel's story has come to fulfillment. Yes, he restored us geographically. Now Jesus has come to restore us spiritually and to declare his kingship over the whole earth to reconcile all things eventually. There's a beautiful song called He is Worthy where the singer will ask a question and a choir will answer back. And in one of the lines, the author asks, does God intend to dwell again with us? And the choir answers in response, he does. God's purpose with this world, what is he doing? Why does he keep things around, keep things running? It's to seek and to save that which was lost. Because God sought out, he returned to his people. That that shows you the disposition God takes towards rebels, towards sinners, and nothing will stop that God from accomplishing his gracious purposes. Not geographical distance, not hardness of heart, not hostile authorities, not a remote location, nothing. So wherever you go, your God is with you working out his purposes. Let's look at a third idea. God acts faithfully... When we do not. Now in verse 6, we have some interaction between God and 
his prophet, the Lord says, I want you to communicate this message to the people. So verse 6 reads, a voice says, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry? Well, here's the answer. Here's what God wants him to tell the people. All people are like grass. And all their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. Isaiah, I want you to remind the people that this restoration is not happening because the people are faithful. The people are unfaithful. Their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field, which wither and fall when the breath of the Lord blows on them. Measured against God, humans are unreliable, but not God. That's why verse 8 reads, The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. And the Net Bible notes, in this context, the divine word specifically refers to his decreed promise assuring Jerusalem that her suffering is over and his glorious return is imminent. That's the word that will not fail. God has promised salvation and it does not depend on human faithfulness. It depends entirely on God. So what do you do in your life? When something has been promised, but not yet enjoyed, you wait for it. And you don't wait passively. There is much we ought to do in life. We have to work on things and and improve things, be good stewards of what God has given you. Paul even tells slaves in the first century, if you can gain your freedom, do so. But we all hit that point, don't we, where you've done everything you can. And the next step is to cross that line between being faithful to God and trying to manipulate God and take things into your own hands. And friends, when you hit that line, you wait. And that's where the last verse of this chapter has provided immense comfort to God's people throughout the years. Verse 31, But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. That last verse is connected to the passage we're looking at today. The middle of the chapter is basically God saying, I'm the only one who can do these things. Don't look to the idols to help you. Wait on me. And when you don't think you can keep going, when maybe you don't even want to keep going, I will renew your strength. And when the time comes, I will act. That's what God tells us. So here's the last thing for us to consider this morning. Christ's coming tells us that God loves us and others. The passage ends with God assuring Judah of his love for them and then commissioning them to share the good news of that love and salvation with others. Verse 9 reads, You who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. In other words, Judah, go tell the rest of the land, I'm coming. I'm on my way. And he has arrived. From our position, we can hear Jesus telling us, go tell the rest of the world what I have done, that I've come And then I'm coming again. Verses 10 to 11. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power and he rules with a mighty arm. 
See, his reward is with him, and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. Notice the tenderness and love in that verse. God comes with power. He rules with might. Nothing can stop him. But he also deals gently with his people. Carries them close to his heart. Because we are his flock. A people he loves. We are not possessions he manages. We are his people. And notice again just that emphasis on God himself coming for his people. See verse 10. The sovereign Lord comes. The governor of the universe. The one who, according to verse 12, measures the waters in the hollow of his hands and holds the dust of the earth in the basket, who weighs the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance. That God stoops down to be born as a baby and to come to his people in love and salvation. And as God serves us, as God brings light to the world in that way, then we become the servants that God intended us to be. And that's the note I'll close on. Again, the end of verse 9, Say to the towns of Judah, Here is your God. God, through Isaiah, was proclaiming good news to Jerusalem. Let those besieged or exiled inhabitants know, I'm coming. And now God tells us, Go take that news to the world beyond. God has communicated his good news to you, and now we can, by word, by deed, communicate the good news to others. Be, embody the presence of God. Embody his promises to others. Be the means for others to taste and see and know that the Lord is good. So you take comfort this Christmas season in God's forgiveness, which comes by grace, and go reflect his light and his image to the world. Let's pray and give thanks. Father in heaven, thank you for Jesus the Lord. Thank you for in the midst of this season, we can gather here as your people and focus on him. This is a joyful time. Good times we're enjoying together. Lord, thank you that Christ is the one who has made all that possible, who provides uh, the true reason and the true joy of these gatherings. So Lord, shine your light in our hearts this Christmas season and give where it is needed hope and peace, your love, a sense of your presence. Grant us to know, to experience the things you speak to us here in this passage. And help us again, as we prayed earlier, to seek your presence, to know you, to be faithful to you, to bear your image, to look for your coming to know and and to delight in and to do with diligence your purposes for us, whatever gifts you may give, whatever callings you may provide. Help us then to reflect your great light, show your grace to others. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.